Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. And we're looking at the last meal in our series, A Meal with Jesus. And we're after Jesus has died, has been raised, but these two disciples on the Emmaus Road don't know. And that's where the story is. Uh, we're going to pick up the story. Um, so this from Luke 24, 13 to 35. Now that same day, two of them were going into a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all these things the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together and said, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Thanks, Mimi. Put your hands up if you think Shawshank Redemption is one of the greatest films ever made. Okay, good. We're in good company. Just to remember the film, Andy is sentenced to life in Shawshank State Penitentiary for the murder of his wife and her lover, despite his claims of innocence. Only Andy knows he's innocent. He's very isolated and lonely at first as he experiences the brutality of prison life. But he comes to realize something deep inside your body that people can't touch or get to, and that is hope. Andy becomes a friend with a convicted murderer, Ellis Redding, known as Red, uh, played by Morgan Freeman, who eventually becomes his best bud. Red's a guy who knows how to get things because he's a contraband smuggler. Andy asks him to get a rock hammer to collect rocks, but he's really planning his great escape. And so a friendship develops between Andy and Red, which is what basically makes the film a classic, this friendship. And they have different views on hope. 
read Morgan Freeman has no hopes or dreams. In fact, he fears leaving the prison because he's become what he says is institutionalized. And he talks about other people in the prison. But Andy epitomizes why it's crucial to have hope. He has a spirit of determination and courage. And his world is, he's got an imagination which uh, fuels this courage and desire. And so the film is left kind of to answer the question, will Andy's hope of escape be realized? I won't give away the answer, but you've probably all seen it. Uh, now, uh, at one point in the film, Andy is um, grappling with the brutality of prison life and uh, coming to grips with the loneliness of it. And he's chatting to Red about hope. And this is how the conversation goes. It might not happen as seamlessly as this in the film, but they discuss it. Uh, Andy, uh, Red says to Andy, let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. And then Andy, not quite straight away, but says later, hope is a good thing. Maybe even the best of things and good things never die. You've got two men in a tough situation grappling with hope. But do you see why Red says, let me tell you, my, sen- my friend, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive you insane. Because if you have hopes and those hopes are never met, it's almost better off that you never have the hope. Because if you never had the hope, you wouldn't have that internal pain that you have from unfulfilled hopes. So to protect yourself from that pain, Red is counseling Andy, don't hope, it's easier. Unfulfilled hopes can drive a man insane. But then Andy's point is, who can live without hope? Who can carry on today without a dream of tomorrow? Which of us really wants to give up on hope? Two men in a tough situation grappling with the idea of hope. In Luke's gospel, we're with two people, probably a man and a wife, on a road towards Emmaus from Jerusalem, and they're grappling with hope. They have no hope at this stage, but they're going to meet with Jesus, and they're going to encounter Jesus over a meal, and through that meal, their hope is going to be restored. Look how the story starts. We had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel, and what's more, it's the third day. You've got two people who had become followers of Jesus. They'd they'd thrown everything in with him. They'd said, you're my Lord and my Savior. We're in. Whatever you say, we're in. And they thought Jesus is going to bring the kingdom of God to earth as the Old Testament had promised. He's the Messiah that's going to rescue, redeem is the language here, Israel, in which they thought meant kick out the Romans, establish heaven on earth in the city of Jerusalem. But instead of beating the Romans, Jesus had been crucified by the Romans. Instead of vindicating the Jewish people, the Romans were still very much in charge. Instead of peace, the might of Rome was really the rule of, uh, you know, how everything sort of got done. So they'd lost hope because they thought Jesus was going to do something, and then he didn't, or he didn't do it as they expected. And did you notice they're walking away from Jerusalem? They have their back to the city of God. It's Luke's way of symbolizing they're walking away. From all they'd hoped in, from Jesus, from God, from the Old Testament, from the scriptures they'd believed, they're walking away from the hopes that they'd had. They're in a place of despair on the road to nowhere. We've only heard of Emmaus because of these two people. And you know, it's a great picture of where many of us are at or our culture is at. We're in a place of despair on the road to nowhere. And many of us are saying, we had hoped such and such. As a pastor, I speak to many young people who just assume that when they grow up, life would get easier and it would be nice. They just assumed at some point it all just changes. And they'd hope, we had hoped 
Well, I had hoped for a marriage partner. It never came, or my marriage wasn't easy when it did come. I had hoped for a family, or it never came, or when it did, it was complicated and it was hard. I'd hoped for a job or financial independence or satisfaction in my job or comfort from the fact that I'm making an impact in this world, but my job is boring. Or I'd hoped, and my hopes haven't been realized. Or I'd hoped for personal stability. I'd hoped that one day these anxieties, this inner insecurity that I feel, these, these pains, these fears, all the mental health challenges that came across me in my mid-twenties, that I didn't, I'd hoped that this would all, and it hasn't gone away. I haven't arrived at these things that I thought would happen. Oh, I hope my Christian life would take off. And, it, and I hope that when I had a kid, this, we hope for things. And then often it doesn't work out. And we're going, when is life going to ease off? I deserve a break, don't I? I deserve for my hopes to come true. Just this week, I was speaking to a friend on Skype. He's moved to America. And uh, we've known him for 15 years. A very good friend. And he was basically saying this to me. I had hoped. Uh, he was diagnosed with uh, bipolar five years ago, and uh, it really, and it was one year into his marriage, and so their whole marriage has been racked by his mental health. Which, you know, and he was talking to me about this, and he said, he he said to me, Steve, I had hoped by this stage I'd have a family, and kids. I hope that my marriage wouldn't be as hard work as it's been. And he's saying, I'm the one, I'm the reason it's been hard work. He knows it, and they're working through it. He'd hoped that he'd be a church pastor by now, and he's not. He'd hoped for all these things. And he, we talked about how he's, he said, it's almost as if I've lost a loved one, Steve. I'm mourning for all the things that I'd hoped for. And there's frustrations and pains. Uh, and he's on the Emmaus Road, grappling with hope. And he's a firm believer in God. In fact, he's got a, a very fervent faith, which is wonderful. But he's still coming to terms with the last five or six years of his life. Well, this is a story that I hope speaks to all of us and our culture about what it is to say, I'm on a road, I'm in a place of despair on the road to nowhere, and yet I have hope as I encounter Jesus. And we're going to see they encounter Jesus in two ways. They encounter Jesus in the scriptures, and they encounter Jesus with a meal. At the beginning of the story, they, they're on this road to nowhere, heading out of Jerusalem. They're, they're in disillusioned, and they're downcast. At the end of the story, their hearts are burning, it says. And they're running back to Jerusalem. And they're saying, he's risen. What happened from the start to the end of the story? They met Jesus in the scriptures and through a meal. So that's hopefully what we're going to do today. What does Jesus do to take them on the journey from despair to hope? He does four things. He asks them questions. He rebukes them. He gives them a Bible study. He eats a meal with them. If we want to go from a place of despair to hope, we need Jesus to ask us questions. He's got to rebuke us. He's got to give us a Bible study. And he's got to eat with us. Let's look at these four things. Do you see how the story starts? They're on this road to Emmaus, and it's he, st- that he enters into their dialogue, and he starts by asking them two questions. He asks them, what were you discussing as you walked along? And they say, well, don't you know what's happened in Jerusalem? Jesus died. And then he says, well, what things? And off they go again. How does Jesus engage with two people that are feeling hopeless? He doesn't come in by saying, I'm here, risen. He says, Tell me what's going on in your world. What's, how are you feeling? What's, can I enter your story? He asks questions. He learns their story. He shares their pains. He listens to their disappointment. He joins them on a journey out of Jerusalem to nowhere. He joins them on the journey. 
In my experience of chatting to people who have walked away from God, it's rarely an intellectual argument, and now they're atheists because intellectually they came to believe that. There's some like that. It's more that they got really upset with God because God allowed something to happen or didn't allow something to happen, and that anger turned to bitterness, and that bitter then turned to resentment, and then it was just sort of entrenched, and they ended up on this, you know, I've got my back to Jerusalem, I've got my back to God. And many people will testify that if you harden your heart to God, you find your heart becoming hard in all kinds of ways. Or if you harden your heart to your wife or a friend, or actually you can't harden one part of your life and find your whole heart isn't becoming hard. How does someone break through the hardness of each of the heart? Everyone has hardness in their heart from something, some pain, some wound, some hurt. How do you break through the hardness? Someone has to come along, join you on the road to nowhere, and say, how did you get here? What's going on? Jesus wants to break the hardness in each of us. So he joins us. He walks with us. And he starts asking us questions. If you're in a place where there's unfulfilled hopes, shattered dreams, deep wounds, the first thing you have to do is let Jesus ask you some gentle questions and allow him in. Talk to him about the disappointment. Talk to him about the pain and the hurt. Talk to him. Be vulnerable. He's not going to force his way in. He doesn't do it here. He doesn't force his way in. You have to go, no, I want to just let the hard veneer go for a minute, and you can come in, Jesus, and we can talk. What's the application? How good are you at being honest with your feelings, with Jesus, with others? Do you keep the hurts in? Do you keep the disappointments in? Do you not vocalize it? Do you hope they'll just magically go away like when we grow up? and these things? No, they, don't, they don't magically go away. You can't just brush them under the carpet. You've got to talk about it. What, what I counsel people to do when they come to me and they're full of anger or hurt or pain, I say, write it down. Write it down as clearly as you know how. It can take hours. Just write. It's what I do. I write it down and I say, Lord, these are my fears. These are my hurts. This is, I, I fell out with someone and I, I, I acted badly there. Ah, I want to know what I'm feeling. All knotty, but I'm knotted up. Start to write it down and then start to literally pray what you wrote down and then have the guts to tell someone else what you wrote down. You will see the knots begin to loosen. The tears will begin to come. The pain will start to ease and Jesus enters in. You have to. He wants to ask you questions. Will you let him in? I've been in church ministry as a pastor for over for 10 years now. I started when I was 26. I'm now 36. And uh, what I'm learning is that most people, um, what I'm learning is that many people experience that internal hardening in their life, and they want change, but they don't want the vulnerability that change requires. I just want change. I don't, do I have to be vulnerable? And, and let, Yeah, you do, if you want that kind of change. We have to trust people with our wounds and our unmet expectations. I quoted at the beginning of the service, Psalm 126, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. You have to sow your tears though. To sow your tears is to invest your tears, to let people in, to think through why am I crying, to sow them. And if you sow them, if you invest in these tears, if you invest in the tough times, in God and letting him in, then you will reap great songs. When was the last time you cried? And let someone see you cry. When was the last time you let someone in who you trusted? When was the last time you allowed Jesus to gently join you on a road and ask you some questions? That's how the story starts. He starts gentle, but then he goes stronger. He rebukes them. They unpack their, their you know, he joins them on the journey. But then he says to them, 
you know, they say, well, why, why did he die? And they can't get their heads around it. And he says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? If you want your hope to be restored, at some point, Jesus has to say to you how foolish you are and how slow to believe. And you have to accept it. At some point, he has to tell you you're a fool. And most people don't like this bit of Christianity because they want Jesus as a friend who does what they want. And Jesus at some point has to say, I've journeyed, I've asked I'm, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. In other words, he has to challenge your expectations of what you thought life was going to be about. He has to show you that your whole motives and your structures and your dreams, some of them were wrong. And he has to say how foolish you are. If you just hadn't believed in that worldly way, if you hadn't had that stupid dream, how foolish. He has to change your thinking. You see, this couple on the Emmaus Road had not understand that for Jesus to redeem Israel, he had to die. They said, we hoped he'd redeem Israel. Jesus is saying, I did redeem Israel. I just didn't do it the way you wanted. I'm not the king with the army kicking out the Romans. I'm the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. My battle was not against the Romans here. It's against sin and death and idolatry and darkness and Satan. And I had to die on a cross and draw all those powers into myself so they could be conquered by being disarmed. My battle was far greater than some instant battle you hoped I'd win for you. He has to say, how foolish, could you not see that? And they couldn't at that moment. Did not the Old Testament say that the Messiah would have to suffer and then enter glory. So Jesus has to change our thinking. He has to enlarge our vision. He has to reveal our selfishness. He has to expose our idolatry. If you want Jesus to restore your hope, at some point, he'll journey to start with. He'll be gentle to start with. He'll ask questions to start with. But at some point, he's going to look at you and go, how foolish. And you need to say, you're right, Lord. I was foolish. In other words, you have to have a moment of surrender when you go, I, I wanted life my way You've revealed that life my way has got me nowhere, and I'm willing to say, okay, Lord, I was foolish, and now I trust you. I'm going to stop forcing life down the path that I've mapped out for myself. I'm going to throw up my arms and surrender and say, I give up, God. Take control, and then see what he takes you, what journey he takes you on. I wonder if you're willing to hear Jesus say to you how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe, and if you're willing to say, yes, Lord, you're right. Thank you. Now lead me. So do you see how the first two points work together? He gently asks questions as he journeys with them on the road to nowhere. And at some point, he turns around and says, how foolish. If you want your hope restored, you'll need Jesus at some points to be very gentle, to ask questions, to enter with you, to walk on the journey to nowhere. But at some point, he's going to turn around and offend you and challenge your thinking not because he's trying to be nasty, not because he wants to hurt you, because he wants to help you, but to help you, he has to take you off the path you're on and change your thinking. He has to soften the hardness and open our dull minds. Do you remember the famous story, Luke chapter, uh, John, chapter four, uh, John chapter 11? Jesus meets two sisters who are grieving, Mary and Martha. Their brother has died, Lazarus. Lazarus was a good friend to Jesus. And Mary and Martha had sent word, hey, Lord, the one you love is about to die. Come quickly, because they believed in Jesus that he could heal. And Jesus came, but he, if you know the story, he delayed. And he delays four days. And so by the time Jesus arrives to Mary and Martha in Bethany, it's too late. Lazarus has already been dead four days. 
And so you've got these two grieving sisters who are going, Jesus, we thought you, if you just turned up this, and you would, why did you delay? And they're, they're grappling with things they didn't expect. Jesus didn't meet their every need in the way they expected. And as Jesus comes to Bethany, uh, Martha goes out to meet him. She's in a slightly different place to Mary. And, and she, they, both sisters ask exactly the same question. Lord, if you had been there, our brother would not have died. So it's actually an exclamation stroke question. And Jesus, you know what he says to Martha? He says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. Do you believe this, Martha? And Martha says, yes. So Martha gets hit by truth. I'm the resurrection and the life. And Martha's changed and, and, and empowered by this moment. Jesus then goes a bit further in, and Mary hadn't come out. Mary was in a greater place of hopelessness than Martha. So Jesus has to go to Mary at the tomb. And at the tomb, John 11.35, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus didn't go, I'm the resurrection. He said, Jesus wept. Two sisters, same brother had died. Same question, Lord, if you've been there. Two different responses. To the one truth, to the one tears. You see it here on the Emmaus Road, gentle questions, tears, entering in, journeying with you, but at some point, some truth to change your thinking. And you're going to need truth and tears from Jesus and from his community, the church, to help you. If you just have tears, you have a companion on the road, but you won't turn around and head back to Jerusalem. So in fact, you won't get anywhere. If you just have truth, you won't be ready to listen and turn around. You'll be too hardened. So we need both to receive from Jesus and then exercise to one another the ministry of truth and the ministry of tears. The gentle questions along the road and then the moment of saying how slow you are to believe. Only then will we turn around, repent, and head back to the city of God with joy in our hearts. I wonder which you're better at giving. I wonder which you're better at receiving. Let me spend a few moments thinking about this idea of rebuking. Our culture can't stand it. We think it's called judgment. Don't tell me what to do. Leanne and I, over the years, have had to have tough conversations with different people who said they're Jesus followers, they believe in, in Jesus, and they're part of the church, but they're making decisions and living in a way that is contrary to what Jesus wants and what the Bible says. And Leanne and I, as best we've ha have been able, and we haven't always been perfect, have tried a journey. But at some point, we've had people over, or we've done it one-to-one, -one, and we've just said, look, this is what the Bible says, and you're living contrary to it. And it's been fascinating to see how people have reacted. Some have come back saying, you know, I'm so grateful you had the guts to tell me that something in my life was wrong. And I know you did it from a place of love. And some people have said, I felt judged by you. How dare you? But Jesus rebukes people all the time. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament says, you need to learn to rebuke one another. This is part of Christian living. He's say, I am telling you this, not because I'm judging you, but because I love you. I want you to turn around and head to the city of God and rejoice with me, not because I'm trying to be not judgmental of you. And, and I hope you do the same for me. I'm not putting myself above you. We as a culture and we as a church need to get good at learning how to gently rebuke when the moment comes to say, hey, I love you as a brother. I love you as a sister. And that's why I'm telling you. It's not because I'm being nasty. I do love you. And that's why I'm telling you this. If you want your hope restored, someone's got to gently ask you questions, but at some point they've got to challenge you. Now, what does Jesus do after he challenges them? Point number three, he gives them a Bible study. 
and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So I've heard many people say, Do you know, I'd believe in Jesus if I was there. Jesus raised from the dead. He walked on the earth 40, uh, 40 days, and he, met, he had 12 different resurrection appearances. If I was one of the 12 resurrection appearances over those 40 days, I'm in. But Steve, I never met him, and I can't meet him now because he was ascended to heaven. So what do you expect me to do? How am I expected to believe and know him? Do you see what Jesus is doing on the Emmaus Road? He's answering that question. He's saying, how does anyone know me when I'm gone? By studying the Bible. He's saying, this is how you get to know me. I, and you start with Moses, i.e. Genesis, to Deuteronomy. Then the prophets, i.e. the rest of it. And you discover that the whole of the Bible is all about Jesus. And he keeps popping out at different places. <gasps> I never saw you there. Look at that, that thing in the Old Testament. And then there's a sacrifice. And, and it all starts to add up. And, you, and, you, and it says here, their hearts started to burn. This wasn't intellectual exercise. As they read all of the Old Testament, because they didn't have the New Testament then, their hearts started to burn. Did you notice? Listen carefully. Their hearts did not burn from meeting Jesus in the flesh. Their hearts burned from the Bible study. I wish I could meet Jesus today. Open your Bible. Read it. And look for him everywhere and see if the heart burns and you're encountering him. Have you had that experience when you've read it or you've heard someone preach it to you? I have many times. It's the greatest provision the Spirit ever gave me, my, a burning heart for the Bible. See, he's providing, saying, when, when I'm gone, this is how everyone's going to know me, through Bible study. Earlier in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus tells a parable about a beggar called Lazarus. Well, I maybe got the names wrong with my other guy. Anyway, I think it is. And, a, and he sits at the, uh, the gate of a rich man. Upon dying, Lazarus goes to Abraham's side while the rich man goes to hell. The rich man asks Abraham in hell to send Lazarus to water his, uh, you know, to give him water to call him because he's, he's in such agony. When the rich, rich man refuses, he makes a second request and he asks Lazarus, he says, well, send, send someone you know, to, to my brothers to warn them so they might not experience this judgment. And Abraham replies, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they can be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, if God's word is not enough, not even someone being raised from the dead is going to be this is how we know Jesus today through the scriptures. But here's the point. Studying the Bible should never be an academic exercise. I know lots of people that know the Bible better than me, but they don't know Jesus. So it's not about do I know the Bible just in some intellectual ways. Am I encountering Christ through the scriptures by the Holy Spirit in community? Is my heart burning? So here's the point. You can know the Bible without knowing Jesus, but you cannot know Jesus without knowing the Bible. So if you want to know Jesus, at some point you've got to open it up and start studying it on your own and in community. Jesus is showing this, these two and the rest of church, the church after he's gone that we encounter him through the scriptures. So how does Jesus restore our hope? How does he change our mindset? He gently journeys with us, asks us some questions. At some point, he says, you're a fool, and we have to go, you're right. And then he says, let me open the Bible to teach you what you should be thinking and how you should be feeling. And then finally, he's going to eat a meal with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then, when? Their hearts burned at the reading of the scriptures. The heart, their eyes were opened. 
when the bread was broken. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while we talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up, returned once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and he's appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when they broke the bread. Jesus is recognized through the meal. The two ways we, the church, who live post-resurrection and ascension of Jesus, get to know Jesus is through the scriptures and through a meal. He's providing for the whole of church history by saying, this is, what, this is how you know me when I'm not here. This has been called communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the Mass. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Break bread, drink wine, to meet me. Now, I don't believe, and I don't think the Bible gives us precedent, to say this becomes literally the body and the blood of Jesus in this moment. I do think they are symbols and signs of a great reality that's happened and is happening. But that does not mean that Jesus is not somehow specially present with us when we come forward for bread and wine. And we should come with the expectation that we're going to meet him. And it's not just the moment of the bread and wine. The whole point of this series in Luke's gospel, a meal with Jesus has been, it's a community Jesus is forming an alternative community that's intimate, that's close. He's giving an invitation, saying, Jesus saying, get to know me and get to know one another. Have a place of welcome, of trust, a place where you're equal, a place of friendship, a place where grace covers over all our mess, but we're still honest about it. Very famously in Revelation 3, verse 20, Jesus is speaking to a church in Laodicea, which is situated near modern city of Denizli in Turkey today. You can go and see the ruins. And he says this, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. He's speaking to a church. He's as if he's on that door out there going, Will you let me in? I want to be intimate. I want to be close. I want to ask you questions. I want to challenge you. I want to open the scriptures with you. Will you let me in to these hurts, to these wounds? And if you will, your hope will be restored. You'll turn around. You'll run back to Jerusalem. And you'll say, it's true. My mind has been changed. My heart has been opened. My heart is burning. My eyes are... He's risen. And suddenly everything we put in place. And you'll understand some of the things that you didn't understand beforehand. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to come forward. I'm going to ask you all to open up your hearts as you come to take the bread and the wine to meet him. And to say, Jesus, there's things in my life that I won't let you touch right now. And I'm going to open up and over the next weeks and months let you in. But there's one more application. It's not just that we receive, we go and give. How do we minister to Dublin today? Many people are in a place of despair on the road to nowhere. They've turned their back on Jerusalem. They've turned their back on the church. They've turned their back on religion. They've turned their back on God. If you live in Dublin for more than six months, you know this. How do you minister to people in this city? You journey with them for a long time and ask them questions and get to know them and learn their story. That's the first place. At some point, you can say, hey, I see things a different way. But we've got to get very good at asking our friends who don't know Jesus. How do you see the world? Where are you finding life tough? And we've got to learn to journey with them. Otherwise, all this talk of Jesus being raised will seem glib to them. So do you want to stand? I'm going to pray. And we're going to come and share a meal. Priscilla and Lucas and uh, Eben and uh, Yvonne are going to come.
and are going to be the people serving out the food, uh, the bread and the wine. You'll come down the front, and then you can spiral around. This one's got non-alcoholic options and gluten-free. You can take from either table, but if you need that. And uh, this is for anyone who knows Jesus as their Lord and Savior. If you are still on a journey of faith and investigation, then we just ask you to stay where you are, because this is for those that have said, Jesus, I'm in, I'm yours, and I'm going to let you in. And if you want to do that today, if you hear him knocking, then you can come forward and we can pray with you after to accept Christ. So let me pray, and uh, maybe the music can start, and we'll just have a moment of quiet, and we can shut our eyes just to reflect, then I'll pray, and we'll finish by coming forward. Take a moment to allow God in. Talk about those areas, just in the quietness of your heart now. Talk about the areas that you haven't been letting him in. Where are their fears? Where's their hardness of heart? He's going to be gentle. He's not here to hurt you. Or for some of you, you need to hear the rebuke to change your way of living and thinking. So Lord, we thank you for this amazing story. We thank you, Lord, that you in this story show us how you're going to meet with us in 21st century Dublin through the scriptures, through community, through a meal, through song, through remembering and praying and connecting to you. I pray, Lord, for those who are in a place of real hopelessness or despair or they have family members and friends that are in a hopelessness place of hopelessness and despair we'd hear you gently asking us questions and we'd let you in help us to get better at sharing our emotions and our feelings with you and with others I pray Lord for those of us that need to hear that rebuke I need to turn around I need to come out of our foolishness and our unbelief and not feel like we're being judged but you do want to convict us and change us and accept that from you. I pray, Lord, that the scriptures as we read them in our city groups and at prayer and worship nights and on our own, that our hearts would start burning because your Holy Spirit would be deeply at work in us. The scriptures would be alive to us. And I pray, Lord, as we come forward now to eat this meal and as we have meals in this church in all kinds of contexts, we'd find our hope is being restored as we meet with you. We thank you for your blood that was shed for us. That means we can be forgiven. We can be given a new start. We don't have to hide or cover up or fear anymore. We're forgiven and we're loved. And thank you for your body that was broken for us. That you did defeat all the powers of darkness and death and sin and hell and Satan. And you took all that into yourself so we don't have to fear those things. So help us now to come forward with gratitude and joy and a desire to open up our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.